Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam, the provocateur. And Scott, rain or shine, all is mine. Oh, here we go. (laughs) (laughs) We're doing it. We're doing it. That's right. Um... Well, okay, we, we may have spoiled the film if you've read the title of the episode or, or got that reference. But before we get into it, Cam, I, I wanted to uh, sort of pat ourselves on the back a little bit, really. Mm, yes, indeed. We are more than worthy of praise at this point. <laughs> yes, indeed. This marks our 52nd film that we're covering and thus a complete year. We have been doing this for exactly a year and we are celebrating with this film. That's right. Um, we don't like to do anything conventional on Spy Hards. I think a lot of people would celebrate their one-year anniversary with, like, I don't know, a really flashy Bond film, Mission Impossible, something that people care about. Um, but we instead <laughs> are choosing a movie that I think is, well, I shouldn't say that people care about or don't care about, because I think the movie we're going to talk about today is one that a lot of people are still obsessed with. And continually like to pick over. So I think it's something that our listeners are going to enjoy hearing us talk about. But it's not, it's, it's not the, uh, the victory lap that maybe people might have expected as a one-year anniversary. No, I, I think it would, again, as you say, be too easy to go in and do you know, the Mission Impossible or something like that. We like talking about the films that are troubled. Mm, yes, and, we do. And I, and I say, what better film than this? Yeah, one of our go-to um, avenues for podcasting, which we did not plan when this you know whole thing started, it was a complete accident we kind of fell into, was we started talking to a lot of writers and a lot of directors who had worked on films. And a lot of the people we would get on the show had made movies that, let's just say, they didn't make the knock list. And that actually became, to me, a lot more interesting sometimes than the movies I actually enjoyed because it allowed me kind of access into how this movie wound up like it did. And in a lot of cases, it was elements outside of the control of the creators in the first place. And I think the one, you know, this week, that's very much a uh, aspect of this film that is pretty legendary, that there was a lot of forces working against it. Um, So I think sometimes these movies are more interesting to talk about. Yeah, we could sit here for two hours talking about, you know, License to Kill and just, you know, nod heads about how good it is. But, you know, I I want to dig deep into the richness that is this film. And part of the celebration this week, we should also announce, we actually have two interviews lined up for you, two separate additional episodes. So it's a whole week of coverage that also falls on the 23rd anniversary of this film's release. So we've actually timed it right for once. Mm, Yes, we have. Um, So this is an extravaganza of a one-year anniversary. Don't count on this for the second anniversary. (laughs) No, I think we're out of ideas already at this point. (laughs) You're not going to get multiple uh, behind-the-scenes interviews with the creators of the Boss Baby franchise. (laughs) (laughs) If Alec Baldwin's around, give us a shout. Uh, I wouldn't mind. Sure. But uh, We don't want to talk to him about Hunt for Red October. We'll only ask him (laughs) Boss Baby questions. (laughs) <laughs> no Mission Impossible or anything like that. It's no. just Boss Baby. Yeah. Just Boss Baby. Well, I, I think uh, we're, we're circling our target, Cam. So I think it's time we put our trilby hats on and talk about the film that we're covering this week. 
Mm-hmm. Yes, we are talking about 1998's The Avengers, the adaptation of the 1960s British spy adventure series starring uh, Patrick McNee, Diana Rigg, Honor Blackman. There was a lot of actors who popped up on that show, but um, uh, McNee, Patrick McNee, was the actor who carried it from beginning to end. And it's a very popular, I think, cult show in North America. But I'm curious, Scott, over there, is it more of an institution? It's kind of hard for me to answer that question because I fall into probably the wrong category of people. I'm a bit too young to have been around for its original run or for it to have been put in what we would call syndication and rerun in the 70s. Right. So I, you would hear my parents talking about it or grandparents particularly. It's it's that generational gap, unfortunately, that for me, I never watched it. I, I saw bits on television. I kind of knew the look of the Avengers and which I suppose leads me on to sort of my stories and our stories with the film itself, because I distinctly remember the trailer for this film dropping. Mm -hmm. I don't remember what film it was attached to. I'm sure we could go back and look. But I remember seeing the trailer, seeing The Avengers and getting it like I knew the brand. It tapped into something that I was aware of through osmosis and, you know, uh, memes. Oh, there wasn't really memes in the 90s, but you you get what I mean. Um, and. The trailer was terrific, by the way. Yeah, I remember the trailer as well. I was super excited to see it. For me, I didn't know what the Avengers was. Like, I, I do remember a lot of the coverage around this movie. You know, Jeremiah Chechik, who directed it, was giving interviews to Cinescape magazine, which I read at the time. And a lot of the interviews were explaining what the Avengers was to the North American audience. Because, I mean, for me, it meant nothing. I, I think I may have seen... There's kind of that iconic shot of Emma Peel coming out of the telephone box. Um, I may have seen that shot at some point in my life, but beyond that, I really knew nothing. But I remember seeing the trailer, and I didn't really care that much about Ray Fiennes or Uma Thurman in the trailer. But what really grabbed me was Sean Connery as the villain. Um, you had that bit where he's giving the whole monologue, you know, they'll die, they'll burn, and what have you. And there was some, you know, special effects shots going on with the explosion of the Big Ben. And that had me because this falls right in that era, 1998. We're between, you know, basically the first two Brosnan Bond films and the latter two Brosnan Bond films. So I'm right in kind of core James Bond territory, going to the movies to actually see Bond for the first time in my life. So this looked kind of along the same lines and I was really excited for it. It felt like a summer blockbuster. It had that feel, that sort of momentum going into it. I, I don't know the release dates of stuff. That's more your area. But like, I feel like it's in the same area as things like Independence Day. Yeah. What's funny, too, is like, okay, so Independence Day was released right for the 4th of July weekend. That became Will Smith's big time, you know, open movies. Men in Black, same thing. Wild Wild West as well. Um, Avengers opened in August. Now, nowadays, when a movie opens in August, it's fine you know um guardians of the galaxy the first one opened in august we've kind of lost the whole concept of having kind of bad release windows we'll release movies in september now you know shang chi you know is going to be a september release in the old days that would have been a red flag this movie's a disaster don't go see it like it's clearly being put out this month because the studio has no confidence and that was the case in 98 the fact that this was an august um release and i remember they didn't screen it for critics but didn't care i was 17 so it was like oh they're not screening it okay well 
in my head, you know, Mortal Kombat opened in August, and that's the greatest movie of all time. So what do I care? You know, that was kind of my situation. I was I was eleven. I didn't yeah. even know it wasn't screened. I couldn't give a monkeys. I just saw a really cool trailer, and I remember our family going to the cinema to see it, and it feeling like in a bit of an event. And then I think this is one of my first experiences of a bad film, mm-hmm. and walking out and actually genuinely going, "Huh, huh." I don't know why I didn't like it. I, I don't think I could really express at eleven why I didn't like it, but I didn't. And yeah. I remember hearing people going, yeah, it was terrible. And you go, yeah, it really was. And maybe I'd heard that before I went in. I don't think we went on opening weekend. So maybe we were influenced by people around us. But I remember not enjoying it and, and walking out and being confused at what I saw from the trailer to the film. But And then I just sort of scrubbed it from my memory. Yeah, I mean, I was pretty similar. I went with a friend. I think we probably went opening weekend because as I recall, my friend who I went with was also very excited based on the trailers. Also, he had no familiar with the show either. So it was just entirely good marketing, I suppose, in terms of a trailer and some of the images they were putting out. Um, you know, the movie wasn't, uh, you know, real financial success, and we'll get to that in a minute. But that marketing obviously worked at least on a certain demographic because we did show up. And I, I remember feeling baffled throughout the movie and that I felt very ill-prepared for what the tone of the movie was. And again, I'm 17 at the time, so I don't know that I'm really... I'm probably over-intellectualizing the experience versus what it actually was at the time. Um, but it was very much a visceral, like, I don't like this. Like, I don't like a lot of what this movie's doing, and I don't really understand it. It felt weird. You know, it, just the year before, Batman and Robin had come out, and I had watched that movie and had similar reactions, as well as actually um, Batman Forever, where it's like, I don't like a lot of what this movie's doing. It's weird, and it doesn't... It just doesn't jive with what I experience or what I want from this movie. And that was kind of the case with the Avengers. But then you kind of toss on the fact this thing was like barely stretched to 90 minutes. It felt very just kind of, you know, cut together over basically in the blink of an eye and kind of walking out afterwards, you know, in the theater lobby and just being like, what the hell was that? That was kind of my experience. And it was an era where. I was seeing those Bond movies. They're over two hours. They felt like grand adventures. And this felt like a, huh? Like, what, what did I just briefly witness? I, I don't want to dig too deep into it at this point. But yeah, I, I just remember walking out and just not getting it. And as an 11-year-old, if you don't like it, you will be very vocal about it. And I must have just checked out at some point because I I remember being disappointed. I mean, my whole family not enjoying it and walking out and just sort of shrugging at the whole experience. And... Yeah, that was probably my first experience of a bad film. I think mine was maybe the uh, sequel to Home Alone. I think that was my first one. We'll get that on the on the record here. I think so, yeah. Home Alone 2? It's yeah. the better film. No, it's not. It's awful. It's just a complete carbon copy of the first one. It's the Men in Black 2 of Home Alone movies. Uh, I think we might have to go to bat for this one another day, Cam. <laughs> I, I, uh, I've just learned something about you I do not like. <laughs> oh... I think I think I'll uh, I think I'll just drink some tea and calm down. <laughs> well, um, I want to know some more about the background of the film, and we have some uh, sort of announcements about the interviews as well, which we'll do in a second. But I did want to read the letterbox.com synopsis. Mm-hmm. The Avengers, some assembly required. 
When an unexpected enemy emerges and threatens global safety and security, Nick Fury, director of the international peacekeeping agency known as S.H.I.E.L.D. Oh, 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 sorry. <laughs> um, wrong Avengers. Sorry, guys. <laughs> the Avengers. Saving the world in style. British military agent John Steed, under direction from Mother, investigates a diabolical plot by an arch-villain, Sir August de Winter, to rule the world with his weather control machine. Steed investigates the beautiful Dr. Mrs. Emma Peel, the only suspect, and simultaneously falls for her and joins forces with her to combat Sir August. I mean, would you say Dr. Mrs.? I don't think you would. I'm not really sure the ordering. Maybe you would. I don't know. Uh, perhaps that is proper. I don't really know. I've never really thought about it. I always thought it was you would say doctor, and then if they don't mind, you will say Mr. or Mrs. Yeah. Or Miss. Maybe. I don't mind the clarification. The movie's a little confused in that regard, so I don't mind some extra clarification. Doctors listening, let us know. Mm, yeah. Um. I, yeah, I guess that was fine. It probably went on. It cuts off a halfway through, and you just when it when it introduces Emma Peel, I think it just goes on a bit too much. Yeah, I mean, it's trying to sum up a movie that let's just say narrative is not its friend. Yeah, I suppose you can't make sense of senselessness. Mm, yeah. Um. Okay, Cam. So I, I suppose let's talk about these interviews that we've got. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the release schedule this week is today is Tuesday. The episode came out in two days time, which will be Thursday. Uh, we're doing an interview with the director of this film, Jeremiah Chechik. And then we're following it up on Saturday with an interview with the writer of this film, Don McPherson. So usually we would have this whole section where we give everyone some information on the background of the film, but we cover a ton of that in those interviews. So do you have like a cut down version we can go through and some other bits and bobs? I was just going to give kind of an overview of the the talent behind the movie, but I will say this, like these two interviews we've done with the writer and the director, um, they aren't repetitive. Like those who tune in are going to get very different um, angles on how this movie wound up as it is on screen, as you watch it now. Um, With the Jeremiah Chechik, you're going to get a lot of discussion in terms of kind of the studio politics that were going on, the actual production stories about working with Sean Connery, that sort of element. Whereas with Don McPherson, he's going to break down what the story of this film was supposed to be, what the original script was, what the intent was. Some of those crazy scenes you have a lot of question marks about watching this movie. He's going to explain exactly why they are like they are and how they would have made sense in original iterations of this film. And he's going to take you through the process of the evolution or de-evolution of the story of the Avengers and how it wound up as this kind of confused 1998 blockbuster. So tune in for those. They're really, really fascinating. And again, taking very different angles on the entire production of the Avengers. Yeah, and I'm I'm super thrilled that we got both those interviews. They were both fantastic guys to speak about. And very generous with their time, especially for films that they're both of them are maybe not sour about, but they didn't have great experiences doing. Yeah, and I think those of you listening who were fans of the 1960s show are really going to want to tune in for the Don McPherson interview because he's actually going to talk a lot about some of the lore of the franchise and what he was hoping to bring to it. And just the original story concepts were very much 
angled around the Peel family and what he wanted to do there. And none of that's in the movie that <laughs> we watched to review this week. So I think uh, Avengers fans out there will get a lot out of that interview. Yeah, I agree. So what do you have for us, Cam? Okay, so um, basically this was a Warner Brothers production. And this was an era where adapting TV shows was all the rage. Um, we've been through it a few times. We've done Charlie's Angels. Um, but this is the era where they're doing not just like the big stuff like Brady Bunch, but we're also getting like um, Beverly Hillbillies or Car 54, Where Are You? It was like if you had a TV show property, you were going to adapt that to the big screen. And the Avengers, I think, made sense as a, you know, a bit of a blockbuster franchise. Now, it was not intended to be a blockbuster franchise in the eyes of those that made it. It was seen as more of a, um, you know, mid-budget maybe fall opener type movie, you know, something that would open in like November, October and be more of like a $50 million, $40 million adventure film. That's not what wound up happening. And that's kind of where the movie ran into some problems. But it had a budget of $60 million, So it was a respectable size, although not like comparable to some of the other blockbusters of that same summer, like, you know, Roland Emmerich's Godzilla, for example. Um, but the director, Jeremiah Chechik, um, he was a guy who had had a really interesting career trajectory, which he breaks down in the interview we do with him. But he would come from the world of artistic and commercial photography, sort of worked his way into commercial directing, as well as music video directing. And then he got into motion pictures and he did a few movies. And I'm just going to name out the three movies he did that led into this one. I'm curious, Scott, if you have any thoughts on any of them. So he started off with National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. He also did Benny and June and Tall Tale. Um, I'm just curious of any of those, you know, have you seen any of them? The only one I was familiar with uh, going into the interview and to today's episode is National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, which is a, a favorite in, in my household for a Christmas film. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I I didn't say the direction jumped out at me particularly, but it's a, it's a really funny film. And it was something that was just played when I was a kid. So yeah. I saw fond memories, kind of like Home Alone. It was just on in the house around Christmas. But not Home Alone 2. That was on more in my house. <laughs> it's on right now. Can you please turn <laughs> it down? It's really distracting with the audio. <laughs> I'm actually recording from outside the uh, Christmas tree in New York right now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I saw National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation right when it hit video. And it was one that my family very much enjoyed. I can't say it's like a perennial watch for us, but I've probably seen it like four or five times over the course of my life and always very much enjoyed it. It was one of the better of that franchise. It's kind of like National Lampoon's Vacation is probably the best. And then Christmas Vacation is really good. And then the rest you can kind of ignore. Um, Benny and June was a movie I'd heard a lot about. It was pretty well known. And I watched it in advance of the interview and was actually quite charmed by it. It's a pretty entertaining film with uh, Johnny Depp, Aidan Quinn, as well as Mary Stuart Masterson. Um, it's a movie that I think if it were made now, it would be made differently and that it's dealing with a lot of mental illness um, situations. And they are very, um, they're very nonspecific about what exactly the issues are. Mm. So you kind of have to glean it for yourself. But it still is a very charming, romantic kind of fun comedy. I enjoyed it. It's a it's a really, you know, light, entertaining film. Um, I never saw Tall Tale. That was a Disney adventure with Patrick Swayze. Um, I believe he played Pecos Bill, maybe. It was, uh, you know, kind of a fantasy um, Western kind of thing. And I suspect that's probably what got him in the door for Avengers, just because it showed he could work with effects. That would have been, I think, fairly important. Um, so that was kind of 
Chechik's background, the writer was Don McPherson, who I really wasn't familiar with. Um, he'd written a couple films that I feel like are kind of lost to the sands of time. He did Absolute Beginners with Patsy Kensett, as well as Crossing the Line, which was an early Liam Neeson film. I haven't seen either of them. Um, I don't think they've had much of a legacy. You're not much of a fan of EastEnders, then? I, I haven't watched EastEnders, no. Dum, 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 dum. That will work for all the British fans, and no one else... <laughs> but yeah he'd also worked in uh you know some tv work and then he wound up on this film and he talks about how he wound up on it because it seems an unlikely trajectory for him to be writing a you know very expensive blockbuster film yeah both of them i mean i was i can kind of see the trajectory like you pointed out with jeremiah with don it was a bit more of a i feel like and we do sort of talk about this in the interview to be fair here how he got the part and how he had been writing a lot of scripts in the background that just hadn't been made He'd been involved in big projects, but they just never got to screen. So his name was... It's kind of hard when you look on IMDb because you just go, well, like, where is the work? But he's done tons of stuff. It just... The scripts are sitting in an office somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, totally. I mean, that's the story of so many Hollywood writers who have written a lot of things that just never got produced. Um, They've continued to work since. You know, Chechik has done a lot of TV shows like Burn Notice, Chuck, Gossip Girl, The Gifted. He's still at work, you know, consistently. Uh, McPherson's written on the Fleming TV series as well as he did the um, uh, Sean Penn action movie The Gunman um, a handful of years ago. So they're both still out there. But um, yeah, kind of an unlikely duo maybe to be making a blockbuster at this point. So when it came to casting, um, the one real note to make is that Nicole Kidman was cast as Emma Peel. That was who they wanted. I, From what it sounds like, the um, chemistry tests with her and Ray Fiennes were quite strong. But because of Eyes Wide Shut, the Stanley Kubrick film going along with the shoot, she was not available to do it. So she had to drop out and the studio was very big on Uma Thurman. They'd used her in Batman and Robin as Poison Ivy. Um, She was very much blowing up at this point. This is post Pulp Fiction Oscar nomination. It's a time where they're really trying to exploit uh, Uma Thurman's appeal to be more of a big movie star. And... um, you know, so that's kind of how that happened. It's kind of one of those interesting alternate scenarios. Like, what happens if Nicole Kidman stars in this movie? I really want to see the world where Arnold Schwarzenegger plays August de Winter and just makes ice puns. It's so weird that Uma Thurman is in back-to-back blockbusters that are not well-remembered that feature an abundance of weather puns. Well, one of the ones I always love, and I might get this wrong, because you know all the Arnie quotes, but is... Uh, what killed the dinosaurs? The Ice Age. And it's just like <laughs> absolute gibberish. You nailed it. That's the quote. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of those. The Ice Man cometh and <laughs> chill, bird boy. Yeah. It's it's crazy. Like apparently in Warner Brothers, there was a lot of just obsession with uh, <laughs> ice puns and snow puns and all that. It's weird how like you know we talked about Sony's Men in Black International which was recycling elements from Sony's Ghostbusters reboot in that you go like, what? Like, why? You know, this is just a couple years divorce. Why are you repeating elements? But it seems like a lot of that wound up in 97, 98 with Batman and Robin and the Avengers. Like these two movies have a lot of things in common. I noticed this in my notes. I wrote a teeny little section about the sort of common trends between them. But it's weird that um, Batman and Robin has this sort of cult, status now yeah it's a bad film we all could admit it's a bad film but people still talk about it it gets blu-ray releases 4k releases all sorts of stuff whereas avengers gets nothing but i'd say they're about as bad as each other 
Do you think it's just because it's Batman? Well, I mean, it's the Avengers. Not those Avengers. <laughs> well. <laughs> <laughs> I just think if it's like a Batman thing, it's always going to have that lifespan because every time Warner Brothers wants to put out box sets of Batman movies, you know, those Tim Burton movies, I'm sure sell a lot on Blu-ray, 4K, etc. They're going to put out the package so you can get the whole set. And so it just means that Batman and Robin is constantly having that you know, that resurgence of happening again, again, and again onto people. Like, they can't fight it. Batman and Robin is just going to keep coming. Whereas, like, I think if they'd made a sequel to The Avengers or a reboot of this film um, or this property, and it was big, like, people loved it, I think this movie would have those boutique releases and there would be more of an effort to get it out in front of people. Or even maybe a TV reboot that exploded. I think Mm. you need that brand out there because that happens suddenly you're going to get, you know, 4K versions of The Avengers from 1998. It's the same way, like, um, you know, they just put out a 4K release of the Roland Emmerich Godzilla because Kong versus Godzilla and, you know, kind of the monsterverse that's going on right now. It just, you need the brand to be healthy. Wait, wait, wait. You're, you're getting me excited now. Are you saying because of the Ipcris file TV show that's coming soon, I'm going to get a 4K up, upgrade for the uh, Bullet to Beijing and Midnight in St. Petersburg? Is that is that what I'm getting? I would not rule it out. I think if that show is a big hit with people, you may see uh, proper releases. At least in North America, they're very sketchy with the releases. They you know put out a good Ipcris file one. There's a decent um, funeral in Berlin, but I think you may see like a box set or something like that. I could see that. I actually probably would buy it just for the jokes of watching uh, Bullet to Beijing in HD. Although, you know what? The Little Drummer Girl series with Florence Pugh, which you've been watching, um, that didn't do anything to kick the doors open for a bigger distribution for the Diane Keaton film. So you never really know, I guess. I think they had dug such a big grave with that film that the TV show couldn't get them out. Yeah. (laughs) It's too late. Too late. Mm. (laughs) So, um, as I said, this movie had a $60 million budget. Domestically, it did 23 million. International numbers are a little muddy. So I came across two numbers, 25 million or 31 million um, for a worldwide total of either. It's uh, basically 48.6 because if I say 49, the numbers don't add up properly. So it kind of worked out to 48.6 or 54.7. Again, the numbers would have been confusing, but not particularly good. They didn't recoup their budget, I should say. So it landed at number 64 for the year uh, worldwide between The Negotiator the Samuel Jackson thriller, and The Big Lebowski. So, the dude abides. <laughs> was it higher than the Lebowski or lower than Lebowski? It was one spot above. That's something people maybe don't remember because The Big Lebowski has become such a phenomenon and a very, very loved movie and that it was not a big box office performer at the time. And it was actually critically... Uh, it got a lot of kind of, you know, three-star, two-and-a-half-star reviews because they were like, this is no Fargo. It was a uh, scene at the time as a very inferior follow-up to that t- 1996 classic. Well, uh, that's just their opinion, man. Mm, indeed. So the top three for this year, <laughs> boy, what a sandwich. At number one, we have Armageddon. At number two, we have Saving Private Ryan. And number three, we have Roland Emmerich's Godzilla. <laughs> I don't know whether to start singing Don't Want to Miss a Thing or the uh, Jamiroquai song from Godzilla. Both they, they all got good songs. Actually, what was the second film? Uh, Saving Private Ryan. That one did not have a great uh, arena rock song. (laughs) No, it did not. It did not. Uh, The Godzilla one for me, I always think of the Puff Daddy song with the Led Zeppelin sample. That was awesome. Oh, the, uh, 
Ten yeah. Ten yeah, yeah, yeah. The uh, Cashmere see, I was Sample. About, yeah, that's it, that's it. I was thinking about the... Is it Deeper Underground, the Jumeirah did for it? Oh, possible. I never got the soundtrack to 1998's Godzilla. <laughs> We're we're trying to pull away from the film. It's like like oh, I want to talk about Godzilla now. <laughs> I saw that one once in theaters and have not revisited it. Unlike the Avengers, which I've seen now three times. <laughs> That's the same, actually. I saw that in theaters, and again, I was a bit lost. I'd seen a couple of the Japanese uh, Godzilla films, and I thought this is nonsense. Yeah, I didn't like it kid, either. As a kid, yeah. yeah. So yeah, Godzilla. It's interesting that it was viewed very much as a disappointment in that era. Like people looked at Godzilla as a bit of a box office bomb. It was number three for the year worldwide. It just shows you how differently Hollywood looks at foreign money. Back in those days, it was like domestic was everything. International was kind of a bonus, but they didn't look at that as a sign of this movie was a hit. That's strange because it really did have a bad whiff to it, that Godzilla film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. A couple other spy things that are notable this year. Number 13, Enemy of the State, the Will Smith film. And at number 44, we talked about it not too long ago, Ronan. A better film. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, just to close it out, the reception for this movie, as I said, not good. Um, the Razzies were not kind that year. It won the worst remake and sequel, um, which it tied with Godzilla and Psycho. I think that's a cheat when three movies win the worst remake or sequel. Psycho? Yeah, the Gus Van Sant shot-for-shot uh, shot remake of Psycho. Was it bad? It's the same movie, but, like, stripped of anything that makes it special was it bad it's well it's the same movie just with um worse casting and uh color yeah why would anyone do that who does that it was like it was an experiment it was a shot for shot remake it had a couple things they added on including like a more um (laughs) graphic masturbation scene um things like that but um or during i believe the shower scene it like cuts to like tornadoes or something Right. I know. <laughs> it, it, it's it's a non-movie. You watch it and you go, well, now I understand that there is an experiment happening to prove that original movies have a magic around them that you cannot replicate because they could not replicate it. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it, it, it just sounds like a masturbation itself anyway if you're going to remake a film that way. It's just, ugh, why? It was Gus Van Sant coming off of Goodwill Hunting and that was his cash in the chips project he always wanted to do. Uh, so. the, the one for me, one for you. Did, mm. did he do much after that? Oh, yeah. He's done tons of... But he's more of an independent director anyway, so he does a lot of art house stuff. Um, well, there goes my joke. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. No, he's <laughs> been very successful. This movie was also nominated at the Razzies for Worst Picture, Actor, Actress, Screen Couple, Supporting Actor, Director, Screenplay, and Original Song. A song I was not aware of called uh, Storm, which was performed in the movie by Grace Jones and the Radio Science Orchestra. It's in the movie? Apparently. Maybe at the credits. Grace like, Jones? Maybe it's like kind of halfway through the credits. I didn't watch all the way through the credits. Yeah, I was going to say, the credits are quite boring. There's no music playing. Well, it's sort of just score over the... Well, yeah, like yeah. I should say. I mean, the, the score isn't very good, but... Yeah. Uh, okay, well, I, I think we've done beginning to crap all over this film. Why don't we continue to do so? Let's go for it. Okay. It was, it's been interesting rewatching this film. You know I like to do things twice. So I rewatched it once for the interviews and then there was a, a few weeks gap and now we're recording this. So I've watched it once again. And whilst I was a little softer on it the second time, this is my thoughts. Hmm. A clunky, 
overwritten mess. Mostly indecipherable and suffering from a severe lack of connection between the leads. Yeah, I mean, that <laughs> pretty much sums it up. My thoughts this time were, I will say I felt kinder and kinder each time I watched it. <laughs> like, mm, I really did yeah. not enjoy watching it in theaters. Like, I walked out, my friend and I were just, like, crapping all over it when we were out of the theater. Um, when we, or when I rewatched it for the interviews, I was like, okay, this is pretty bad. This movie's a mess. Watching it this time, I still maintain, like, narratively, it's... Boy, we're going to talk about some of the editing in this movie, and I think a lot of that can be summed up just the fact that that this movie went through hell in the editing room. Like, mm -hmm. the uh, studio cut it to shreds, and, you know, Chechik, you know, talks about in the interview, we'll talk with him, but there was, like, a two-hour cut of this movie that was not the version that wound up in theaters. You know, there was a kind of a compromised two-hour version that was probably fairly sound in terms of connective tissue but they edited this thing down to a movie that is 81 minutes when you remove the credits that's not a movie like 81 minutes is threadbare it reminds me of actually um the jonah hex film from a handful of years ago with josh brolin i think that movie's like 78 minutes or something without credits it's like absolutely edited to ribbons i think the house on 92nd street was longer than that yeah, I don't think we've done anything this short um, that I can think of off the top of my head. Which, And you could make a joke and be like, thankfully, this mm. short. But I, I see it more as a case of a tragedy. Yeah, because this movie's doing a lot of weird things. Um, and I think, for me, where I struggle with this thing is, it's a very specific vision. Like, they are trying to create a very strange world. And I don't think it's done well. I think it's very confusing. Mm. I don't really understand the world of this movie. And we're going to dive into all sorts of elements of it. Um, you know, <laughs> well, I'm sure we'll get into the whole teddy bears of it all. But um, there's a lot of elements that just are really confusing. And I don't think they do a very good job of communicating to the audience. And I mean the version of the film, I should say. Not necessarily what the filmmakers intended. But the final version of the film does not do a good job communicating to the audience what this world is. And how it works. Because it's like, there's so many broad, crazy things happening. But at the same time, you have every actor, pretty much. Almost every actor is like talking in puns throughout the movie. Mm. Um, your two leads are just like hitting on each other relentlessly from moment one to the end. And it doesn't feel natural at all. So everything's, very the, everything's this very like arch, kind of strange, campy tone. But it never grounds any sort of suspense or tension. So the movie feels very flat because of that. Um, there's no danger to this movie whatsoever. And it's very weirdly straightforward. I remember when you and I went... <laughs> God, talking about movie experiences, Scott. When you and I were in Vegas, um, I think it was 2018. Maybe it was 2017. It's all a blur now. Um, we went in that summer to see The Dark Tower. The adaptation oh, of the God. Stephen... Oh, God. <laughs> the adaptation of that Stephen King... Um, book series <laughs> and you and I hadn't read the books our friend Tyler who showed up on our um, three days of the condor episode had and we walked out and he was saying like how could anyone ever understand that it was so convoluted in trying to get across all this lore in this like 90 minute 100 minute movie and I think you and I had a different experience which was this movie was stripped so bare you kind of just took everything as like well there's a bad guy and they need to stop the bad guy and that's kind of all you can take from it. That's 
kind of how I feel about this movie. It's like we set up, you know, the Sean Connery August de Winter. There's your bad guy. There's his evil plot. Stop him. That's all I can take from this movie because everything else around it is so confusing. This film had truly forgotten the face of its fathers. <laughs> There's a Dark Tower reference for everyone that uh, watched that movie. <laughs> I don't ever want to watch that film again. I'd rather watch Avengers actually Same. than watch Dark Tower. At Same. least at least Avengers is eighty minutes. Yeah, that's true. I mean, maybe like Dark Tower fans would rather just revisit that train wreck the way I do with like Jaws three or something. But um, yeah, for me personally, I would rather watch the Avengers. Is that, is that high drunk? <laughs> How do you do it? I, it's sick. It's like masochism. I've watched like Jaws three so many times, more times than most <laughs> movies I'll ever talk about on Spy Hards. Okay, well, I, I agree with everything you said. I don't think there's going to be a moment here where we're going to be out of sync, I think, mm. on our thoughts on the film. One bit that I have a major gripe with is um, it's the chemistry between the actors. Uh, your two leads, uh, Ray Fiennes playing John Steed, Uma Thurman playing Dr. Emma Peel, or Dr. Mrs. Emma Peel, depending on who you ask. Um, not only does the the conversation feel like... It just feels like they're reading lines off of a page, which is sure that's what a script is. But there's, they're not saying the words to each other; they're just saying words out there. Yeah. And and not only that, but everything's also really heavily ADR'd, and you can tell. And that always rubs me the wrong way and takes me out of a scene. If if I feel like it's been recorded, I, I feel like I'm not there anymore. Which is maybe that's just a me thing. Mm-hmm. But there's no connection there between the two N- of them. No. And you just sit there staring at like sit there staring at two people just spouting nonsense at each other, and it is nonsense. Like everything they do is just basically a flirty come on. That's all they talk about, and like the movie has no escalation to their mm. relationship. Um, she's introduced in a very I think confusing way. Like I don't know the origins of this character on the show. I know that Diana Rigg joined the show in 1965, so like four years in. Um, I don't know how convoluted the backstory was when she joined, but setting this character up as like someone who worked on the Prospero program, which was a weather shield, and they need to investigate her, but there's a clone, and there's another M appeal running around. It's very confusing. Like, I think if you're going to drop people into a crazy world, certain things need to be kind of matter of fact. We need to just understand who M appeal is from moment one, if everything around her is going to be insane. And it's not. Like, I was... Uh, Everything about her is kind of confusing. I don't really understand who this character is. She's referred to as Mrs. throughout the movie. We have a one line just tossed off of her husband, like, got lost in the Amazon. And you're like, huh? Like, what? And then that's never referenced ever again. But there's this ongoing romantic kind of spark with, uh, and it's not really a spark. It's, as you said, it's just two actors trying to create chemistry in a vacuum and they don't have any. Um, So, like, I feel bad for them because they're kind of doing the best they can, but it's just not working. Um, and it's just because everything about this character that she's playing is so kind of vague and we don't really have a good grasp on who she is. It makes it that much harder. Um, I had a question for you. What did you think of Uma Thurman's British accent? I, I made a note of this. I was actually going to ask you that question because I know you have a tough time with accents. Yeah. It's abysmal. Okay. It is truly some of the worst. It's, I mean, it's not Keanu Reeves in Dracula, but... It's up there. Because when I listen to her accent in this, all I hear is Poison Ivy. It's that Mae West kind of vampy voice she's doing in Batman and Robin. And yes, there's more of a, you know, lilt to the accent. But 
when I listen to it, it doesn't sound like a natural accent in any way, shape, or form. I, I think it doesn't help that it, the the dialogue's not natural. Yeah. Um, I mean, none of us have tea dispensers in our cars, Cam. It's all completely outrageous anyway, so... Really? Well, then I'm cancelling my trip because uh, <laughs> that's what I was showing up to see. Um, we just kept spilling it on ourselves. It got messy after a while. <laughs> a lot of their dialogue in this reminded me of a movie we talked about very recently, which is Die Another Day. Um, you have that scene where Bond and Jinx first meet, and they are talking complete gibberish. Um, something mm-hmm. about like ornithologists and, I don't know, birds coming out to hunt at night. Um, it's crazy, and you know... You can make a lot of jokes about what actually is going on in that scene, but um, because it's so incoherent. But this movie does that that dialogue consistently throughout. Can yeah, they feast, they feast. <laughs> but doesn't this feel like that dialogue sequence for ninety minutes? Yeah, it, it, it's not like it. There's a, a you can point at that scene and die another day take some jokes and mess around. and But there's other interesting parts in the film. Judy Dench is in there actually talking like a human being. It's fine. This film entirely between the two leads. I, I mean, I, I, I have some better things to say about maybe um, Jim Broadbent and Sean Connery. Sure. In terms of their dialogue, maybe. They're still speaking in puns. Like, Sean Connery's dropping weather puns left, right, and center, as well as, like, weird innuendos. Saying things like, you know, he's talking about like you can get a good 10 inches overnight. Um, things like that, like, so weird. But then, you know, um, Jim Broadbent's playing mother. And then you have um, Fiona Shaw as father, the two heads of the ministry. And they're talking in puns sometimes, like saying things like, it really isn't Mother's Day. Things like that. It's like every character is talking in puns. Do you think like, do you think that was a conscious effort? of the script to have this sort of dialogue and we would have maybe got it more if we'd seen the full version like maybe we would have bought into it that they were this just this way because from the get-go you you have the scene where you know ray finds is is fighting off the grannies which is a nice time to see the grannies coming back from one of our dinosaurs is missing Hmm. I'm, i'm i'm happy they're still busy um but he's talking in puns immediately yeah. So there's not like a, there's no ramp up to it. It's not like when Uma Thurman turns up, he just like goes boy oing and the puns come out. He is, he's just pun, and she's pure pun until the very end. And so again, so as you led off with, there's no connection in your leads. You don't care. And then and then we pivot off from there. The other problem is, as you said, there's no stakes. There's no tension. There's no uh, there's no danger in this world. You don't. You're just a passive observer of this film. You don't care about the stakes. You barely know what's actually going to happen if he succeeds in his plan. What it, he he gets them to buy weather off of him. Oh no! <laughs> but also because your two leads are so aloof and just speaking in puns, they don't seem affected by anything that's going on either. Like they're not reacting like anything scary or dangerous. They have that ironic distance, so the audience carries that with them. And I think. If people understood the tone of what's going on, it might work. I don't know. Like, I think they're trying to do kind of a pop art kind of campy film, which maybe on a lower budget could have worked. But, you know, you think about movies like, I don't know. um, Well, you know, we said, you know, Batman and Robin's a disaster because all these pieces don't work. But look at Mm -hmm. a movie like Mad Max Fury Road. That movie's Mm -hmm. full of insane things. You have a guy with like a flaming guitar, you know, playing it on the front of trucks. 
you've got all these weird images one after another, but because they understand the tone and how to ground it and how to place you in a place where you can understand that world and follow along with a very stripped down, easy to understand story and characters you can you know understand, it works. We accept the world. But I think the problem here is we have an insane world where nothing makes sense and two characters we also can't understand. You, I hadn't really thought about it this way, but you really just nailed it for me. So, uh, with the characters not really caring about the danger. So there's there's a scene where uh, John Steed is overcome somehow. I can't remember how it is, but Uma Thurman rescues him and takes him back to his house, and he wakes up in in his pajamas and gets served a cup of tea. And he's he's he sits up and goes, "Oh, oh I'm home." <laughs> and, he he doesn't care that he almost died or that you know how the fuck did I get home or you know where are my clothes I'm so scared am I injured what's going on it's just like oh, I'll have some lemon in my tea mm, sexy legs Uma mm. and it's just boring like, you don't I don't I don't connect and you can say that like James Bond movies do this that James Bond is always cool under pressure but you get those moments where you get that recognition that there's danger happening you know when Jaws attacks like Roger Moore. In Spy Who Loved Me, he looks a little concerned. Like he has that, you know, that look on his face of like, this guy is dangerous. You know, you look at Sean Connery fighting Red Grant on the train. There's exertion. He understands how deadly this guy is. Both Emma Peel and um, John Steed <laughs> basically just like raise an eyebrow and smile at everything that's happening. It reminded me a lot of um, Henry Cavill's character in The Man from Uncle Phil, mm. where he just seemed like he was just too big for the film. It was, it, it was above it all. Whereas at least you had, well, uh, yeah, I'm sure he's he's been cancelled to a non-existence now. But um, uh, at least you have Army Hammer's character to sort of level it out. He at least seems scared and and engaged in it. Um, whereas you've basically got two Henry Cavills just uh, mugging at each other. Yeah, and that's just a problem because I think you need to ground this world. Because I don't think what this movie is doing in terms of its world building. It's not coherent to us, but I don't think it's unacceptable. Like, I don't think what they're asking us to embrace in this world is so far beyond the pale that it's unacceptable. I think it, if it's grounded properly, I think people might have enjoyed this world. It's just that when the actors and the characters, by extension, don't seem invested in it, why should we be? There's a scene where John Steed gets into a phone booth, and then he's hit with a, a hurricane, a thunderstorm. And he just he's like, oh, terrible weather we're having today. <laughs> I mean, you could literally die right now, and that's what you've got to come up with, is it? Okay. I also didn't understand this movie's obsession with having John Steed get, like, almost killed multiple times, but then it's just like, well, they didn't kill him. Like, uh, he gets attacked by the Uma Thurman clone twice. Like, once she, like, shoots him point blank, and the second time, punches him out and knocks him out in a um, hedge maze. And then he just wakes up later and he's like, no, oh, I'm okay. And you're like, well, like, weren't you in danger? Like, did this character not want to kill you? I don't understand why they keep knocking him out just to let him get away. No, I... Uh, we could we could go further into the, the lack of connection between the two. And I think that's probably one of the main roots of the problem with this film. But the other thing is the plot. I mean, I know you say that we could buy it and it's not too farcical, and that's fine. We've watched much weirder films. But it starts off immediately talking about weather control. So you have to kind of like 
get your your bearings of what this this world is, but it never really like explains the rules. Mm. I mean, I know like show don't tell. I understand that, and it does show more than maybe it tells. But I don't understand any of the rules, and so again, you're just not invested in it. I don't have a problem with the whole weather control thing. It feels kind of like a comic book James Bond kind of idea. Um, I don't really understand the movie's obsession with having these characters kind of track various organizations where we're going to like wonder weather or something like that. And I'm like, who are they? I don't understand what any of this is. Um, but in terms of an actual villain plot, it's fine. It's just that it just doesn't have any real stakes because we don't really know what Sean Connery's doing. And we also don't even understand who Sean Connery's character is. Um, he's introduced playing an organ, like he's the Phantom of the Opera and over him, so he's playing this organ in this very dramatic introduction. It's it's kind of fun. Like, I enjoy that introduction to that character. But, like, over the uh, organ is, like, a painted photo of the Emma Peel's face. You know, Uma Thurman's portrait, basically. And why? I don't understand why. Um, you know, he's obviously involved in cloning. Later we find out he's behind the duplicate Emma Peel. But, like, why does he have a painting of his clone over top of the organ? Is it his wife from back in the day he's replicating? Like... What is going on? Like, none of this makes any sense. And it's clearly, it's not his wife because it's Emma Peel. But, like, why is he so fixated on this clone that he has a painting over his organ? That sounds really dirty, but nonetheless. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Sean. So you've said that. And now I'm just thinking about right at the end when Peel and Steed are, are going into the Winter's Lair. And they, you know, she, she, she like mouths a, a passcode into a microphone and he lets them in. And I wondered when I was watching, like, why did he let them in? Because they're just going to ruin his plan and they do when he dies. Is it because he loved her? Was there a story there that was cut? Is that part of the 20 minutes? Uh, yeah, because he tries to basically date rape um, Emma Peel at one point. Like he gets her drugged in his house. Yeah. And he's like going to start like making out with her on a bed. And then he gets called away and she escapes. Oh, Sean. Yeah, it, it's it's like really weird because I don't understand his connection to Emma Peel throughout this. None of that is explained. And the thing is, like, and it's something you'll hear about in the interview we have with Don McPherson. August DeWinter, the character who is the villain of this movie played by Sean Connery, was not the villain of the script. Um, he was a secondary character, um, fairly small in the script, who was expanded and blown up when they got Sean Connery. The original villain actually did have an entire tie to the Peel family. So, like, having a photo of Emma Peel up over top of that other character might have made sense because it was a relative of hers. But with Sean Connery, it makes absolutely no sense. See, I never noticed that picture. But now I can't stop thinking about it. Yeah. As to why? Like, I just, I can't understand it. It's like they built the sets for the um, original version of the script and then they were like, well, I don't know, just keep it anyway. There's so many... I feel like we will end up doing two hours of just me and you asking questions and being like, ah, ah. Can we talk about maybe a couple of things we liked? Yeah, sure. Let's, let's, let's just pivot off for a second. I really like the scene. It's probably my favorite scene in the film. When they're at the tailors and they're fencing and they're sort of giving each other some dialogue, some background on the characters, but it's played off like uh, flirting, really. I think that's what's trying to come across. And that's probably the realest they feel in the whole film. Yeah, I was reminded of the fencing scene in Die Another Day, which was also my pretty much my favorite scene in that movie. And that 
you know, it was a well-staged fencing scene. Um, it felt like because the actors were distracted with the sword fighting choreography, they weren't just focusing everything on puns and innuendos. So, like, it felt like there was a little more of a spark there. <laughs> Not quite a spark, but close. <laughs> um, I, I enjoyed that scene. I, I enjoyed, honestly, like, maybe I'm, like, kind of been ruined in some ways. Because, like, I think in 1998, when this movie came out, no one acknowledged this as a movie that was visually impressive at all. Mm. Um, looking at it now, after watching so many, you know, garbage-looking action movies where directors have just lost the ability, even kind of the mid-level directors, to make things that are visually impressive. Um, I watch this movie and I see some really crazy shots. There's a whole croquet game between um, Sean Connery's character and Fiona Shaw's father character, which I know is confusing to say, but... The movie, it's very confusing nonetheless just to watch the movie and have mother and father being whatever. Anyways, you have that whole croquet <laughs> scene, <laughs> which has like crazy angles and it's really, it jumps out. And like you could say it's maybe um, <laughs> a little obnoxious perhaps visually, but I appreciated that. It was distinct. Like there was moments and shots in this movie that I would say, hey, I don't see things like this nowadays. That makes it kind of interesting to me. There's some really hard zooms. You know, characters will basically abruptly say something, the camera will, like, rock it in on their face. You know, things like that, it's different. I kind of appreciated seeing, you know, really, um, what's the word? Like, it's not grounded in realism. And a lot of movies try to ground everything in realism now. Even the things that are really fanciful, they try to do everything with sort of, if it's not sort of that documentary-like filmmaking style, you know, the Paul Greengrass style, they're trying to portray it very much with um, uh, kind of calm, composed camera shots. Whereas, like, I look at what um, they're doing here. They're just going insane. There's Dutch angles. Yeah. There's crazy high angles, low angles. Like, it looks visually very comic booky in that way that they would show comic book movies in that era. Yeah, this is this is my other. I, it wasn't really a moment, but it's like a feeling, especially from my second recent viewing. It has this sort of unapologetic campiness to it, mm -hmm. and and I appreciate that. I, I'm not saying it worked, but I appreciate what they were going for, and it, it kind of evokes that sort of Star Trek '66, Batman '66. Like it's not shot in the '60s, and you know it, it's meant to look a bit better, but. I don't know, there's, there's a side of it that I almost want to say is a charm to this film. Yeah. Somewhere in there, like it's it's lost in there, but there is a, a certain amount of charm. I can, I can and, and this is what fascinates me about these other cuts of the film, is I think there's somewhere in this film a good film. I don't know that I would say a good film, but I think a film we would maybe appreciate more because at least narratively it would make more sense. I, I well, think... that's that's a question. That's, yeah. that's a question for you. Like if, if, if we had the full cut, the, the, the Cheshire cut, the two-hour version of this film. It's not going to change the chemistry. Mm -mm. So does it save the film? No, I don't think so. I think the chemistry is always going to be a problem. And I think uh, those puns aren't going anywhere. I think a mm. lot of the um, you know, the dialogue is still going to be kind of grating to sit through. Oh, those puns are going nowhere. <laughs> but I think in terms of the plotting, you would have less confusion about everything going on moment to moment. Because the movie's very confusing. Yeah, and that's something I wrote down as well. Is it, I wouldn't say it reminded me of anything, but like it does evoke that sort of born legacy where it's just throwing words at you. Hmm. Red pills, blue pills, mother, father, umbrella, whatever the name of that organization was. Brawley. Brawley. 
Brolly, yeah, like, okay, great, thanks. Um, I'm just here shrugging at this film as it moseys on by. Um, yeah, it, that wouldn't... I, maybe that would get saved because they'd have more time to explain the things. But, like, when they, when he turns up to that organisation and speaks to a a, a very, very young Keeley Hawes, mm. um, who... Uh, and, and he tries to... John Steed tries to hire weather i think i didn't really get what he was doing but i think he tries to, i think it's his way of getting to august or winter but he's like pretending to hire weather yeah uh i i'm confused by it but like that <laughs> whole section just i don't know what he was doing i don't know why he was there and it, I, I didn't understand it yeah and i think like elements like maybe uma thurman's um you know husband who disappeared in the amazon like maybe that character is explained like maybe there's a payoff to things like like there's a lot of things that are just introduced and not paid off and then you have, like, weird scenes where, like, Uma Thurman escapes Sean Connery's house, dives out a window, and then we just cut to, like, the next scene, and they're basically in John Steed's apartment. It's like, well, did the villains not try to capture them? Um, there's also, like, a woman uh, named Alice, I believe, who has, like, a machine gun. She saves them a couple times, played by Eileen Atkins. Um, and, like, August Winter catches her. We cut away. We don't hear about that character for quite a while. It's like, I guess she's dead. And then she just shows up and is like, oh, I've got a letter with his demands. And you're like, you know, you've got to convince us that this guy's dangerous. And so far, he's like knocked out John Steed a couple times. Um, he's kidnapped Alice for like an afternoon. Like, what what is this guy's threat level? It seems very, very low. Well, it does it other ways too. Like uh, the balloon that uh, Father and the clone of Emma, Emma Peel uh, are in towards the end of the film. They're just on it. Yeah, like they just appear on this air balloon out of nowhere, well, out of the sky, but out of nowhere, um, and then they're quickly dispatched. And that you just have to go. Oh, I guess they just went and picked up a hot air balloon from somewhere in central London. Um, and then you've got like Patrick McNee, who guest stars in this film as Invisible Jones. <laughs> I, I guess like he's they walk in and there's oh, it's an invisible guy. Okay. I remember being really confused by that in the theater. I remember when that invisible guy showed up, I really knew I didn't know what I was watching because it was mm. like this doesn't this doesn't jive with what I've seen the rest of this movie. Like this doesn't mix well with what I've seen so far. It uh feels weird. Like it feels like, you know, a lot of people had issues with the invisible car and die another day like it was that step too far. That's how I felt about invisible guy in this movie. It's like we haven't set up a world where people are invisible. I feel like I know where they're going with the trajectory of that because it's like, okay, in this universe, you can control the weather. Mm. Okay, so we're playing fast and loose with, you know, physics. That's fine. But then they just walk in and he's just invisible. There's no, like, there's no, like, Chekhov's gun situation where you see, like, an invisible thing in the background at some point or, like, oh, don't go down there. That's where the invisible guy works. Ha 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 ha. But he's actually there 30 minutes later. There's no setup for it. And so you just get there and you're just presented with this invisible guy that you don't really understand why he's there. Yeah. So, again, that just didn't work for me. It does a weird thing where it'll just suddenly, like, drop a new character into your lap. Mm. And you're like, who is this person? And then they'll never be spoken of again. And that's kind of the case with Invisible Guy. Obviously, that's, a, you know, more of a, a um, cameo for Patrick McNee. But it also feels like... like shouldn't this be a bigger deal that there's an invisible man? He could have really helped them on this mission. Like, it 
wouldn't you want to send this guy in to spy on De Winter? Like, it raises so many questions. Like, why is this not a thing that this agency uses? Like, why are there not invisible agents running around? Um, maybe there are. even, like, a mind... <laughs> maybe there are. They're everywhere. Yeah. Um, but then, like, you know, there's a character played by Carmen Iogo, um, who's an agent as well with the Ministry. She, like, shows up at, like, maybe the hour mark or something? seems to be sort of a character and has a moment at the end with father and you're like i have no idea who this person is like it's like random you know guest star just shows up does two scenes and walks out mother and she's feeding him biscuits mm. yeah i know that's it's, the height of her career it, yeah and jim broadbent's character uh mother this is another element of confusion that again you need something you can rely on you need one aspect you know <laughs> Look, Bond movies can be crazy, but we cut back to, you know, M, Monty Penny. We know them. We know their world. We know how what they're going to explain to us and how it's all going to make sense. So, like, they're giving you all the background you need and you trust them. Mm. With mother and father, I have no idea what's going on. I don't know why they have the kind of the swapped mother-father names, you know, based on gender. I don't understand any of that. I don't know why um, mother has dandruff all over his shoulders. Um... There's a lot of just aspects of this these characters I just don't understand. Like, why does um, Father look like a mad scientist? I don't know. Did you, is this the person that made the invisibility? Because I'd believe it. And then you have, as you said, the balloon sequence, which sets up, you know, we find out that Father is a villain, but is then, like, dispatched along with the Emma Peel clone almost instantly. Like, isn't this something we should be building to, this whole Emma Peel clone? Like, isn't that an important thing? But the movie just kind of, like, introduces elements... And then gives them no real payoff. And those both uh, Father and um, and uh, Emma Peel clone just go boom and we move on. They fly into a building at yeah. a very slow speed in a hot air balloon. It's, uh, it's a painful watch. Yeah. And I had a question about that actually. So, okay. Emma Peel, when she's um, kidnapped and put in that balloon, she's wearing, I, I think, like her red outfit. She has like a, you know, um, Emma Peel wears like a red outfit throughout much of the movie. So... She escapes from that balloon, and she's in that red outfit. Boom, the balloon goes up. You know, we see Emma Peel clone, who is in the classic black catsuit, blow up big time. The next time we see those characters, they're walking across water in inflatable, like, clear balls, basically. And um, and Emma Peel is wearing the black catsuit. Like, what? I noticed that, and I... I tried to find, like, I was hoping for a line. Oh, we had to pop home and have a cup of tea first or some nonsense. But there's nothing. You're, you're meant to understand that they went straight there, really, because they're trying to stop De Winter from, you know, destroying all the weather in London or, or whatever his plan was. So I still don't really know. I assumed that maybe the idea was they'd taken the cat suit off the clone so she could pose as the clone and go in and infiltrate De Winter's lair. Like, be like, I killed them you know, something along those lines, it poses the clone, but none of that actually happens. I mean, again, that might explain why he let them in. Yeah. But how did she know the password to get in, by the way? Uh, is that not your password for everything? How now, brown cow? I, I get, it's just something in the show, and normally people, we should say, we maybe should have mentioned this up front. When we do um, movies based on TV shows, typically we like to talk about the pilot, which wouldn't have really done us that many favors because Diana Rigg doesn't join until 65. But nonetheless, we like to watch the pilots for a sense of the energy and the tone of the, um, of the original show. 
But in this case, the Avengers, the uh, first season, like, went up in a barn fire or something. <laughs> so, like, they don't exist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, um, there's, there's little bits of the first season. There's a couple of full episodes left. But this is a full, like, 25-episode season. And there's, like, 15 minutes of the pilot still available out there. But the rest of the tapes were basically lost. Uh, there was a, a, a lot of fires. Well, there was a couple of fires, but a big fire at a BBC storage facility for a lot of old tapes were lost a lot of the very old doctor who's were lost as well um eventually they have, they've been found one by one over like they've been sent over the world but because the first season of avengers wasn't really played in america yeah it didn't get sent to america and the copies weren't made so right. it was really just a, a british affair that was not picked up and then lost so yeah it put us in a situation where we were having the back and forth of do we just watch a random episode and talk about that on the show which I don't know. It doesn't have the same sort of appeal. I think it's one appeal. <laughs> not bad. Not bad, Cam. Good for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's here all week. Um, but uh, <laughs> so it just didn't make sense for us to just pick, you know, like episode seven of season three to talk about that in relation to the movie. So that's where maybe some of my confusion comes in and not quite grasping the tone of maybe what the show would do or what the backstory of Emma Peel is. Or, like, is mother and father a thing? Yeah. Like, there's, like, well... If I watched the show and all of the weird stuff was in the show, I could at least go, right, it doesn't make sense to me, but at least they're copying the show. Like, you you know, when they remake Star Trek, when J.J. Abrams did it, he's talking about Starfleet, he's talking about this and that. If you've never watched Star Trek, you have no idea what Starfleet is. Mm-hmm. So I can see why mother and father wouldn't make sense if if it was in the show, but I have no proof if it was or was not. But but then you should try and make an effort to maybe explain these things. Yeah. Whereas we're left with, like, it seems like more of a gag, really. A guy's playing mother and a woman's playing father. And that's just a sight gag. Yeah. And that's all we're left with. And a not very funny one. I looked up on the IMDb and I saw the pilot, like a, a male actor did play mother on the pilot so that is a thing on the show but i'm sure they actually maybe explained why that was a thing probably i'm gonna guess i don't know avengers yeah. fans out there you know tweet at us yeah let us know and, yeah. and let us know what you think about this film but i i, I mean we've we've looked at like the grand scheme of the film and and we've looked at the major issues why it sort of fell apart maybe let's get into the minutiae a little bit more before we start to wrap things up but the bears <laughs> that is the scene I remember carrying with me out of the theater and was like the lightning point for me of like what was that was the the uh the uh the bears. I mean the invisible guy was a big one but the the bears was like huh? Like what am I even watching right now? Yeah. It it, it doesn't make any sense. There's no uh lead in. No one explains really why they're in suits apart from like keeping their anonymity. Mm. I guess um but i you 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 go in like this film's pushing its luck by that i don't know the 20 30 minute point where you meet the bears and you go in like okay this is nonsense this is absolute nonsense by this point it is just all over the place and you've got sean connery chewing the scenery making william shatner proud Hmm. in a in a teddy bear suit and I, i mean it's it's gloriously campy great but it's a great image like just the visual of this table of all these teddy bears in sort of these pastel you know colored outfits like sitting around is pretty memorable like it's a great image like i think um 
you know, Chechik knows what he's doing. He's a photographer by trade. He knows how to make a visual that will kind of stick in your mind. But in terms of uh, building a movie around it, it's insane. Um, and it doesn't, it just doesn't work with, I think, what this movie's trying to do. Although I don't really know what it's trying to do. It's just so confused. And then, you know, you have scenes where, like, they're chasing around dudes in teddy bear outfits afterwards. And this movie has another big problem in that, okay, there's all these mysterious figures in, te in teddy bear suits. Um, we see throughout the movie some of these teddy bears, they find the bodies and pull the helmets off. We don't know who any of the people are. So... It's not even like, you know, they remove one of the helmets and it's like, oh, it's father. Um, nothing like that. It's just all random people. Or it's it's Carmen Yoga or something like that. Like some sort of reveal that you're connected to. Whereas it's left to Uma Thurman to give like little lines of exposition of like, oh, he was the head of at Broly or, or whatever organization. You're just like, oh, okay. okay. Yeah. And I mean, I don't care. <laughs> Eddie Izzard plays a silent goon in this movie. She really doesn't have any character because she's silent throughout the film. She gets one line at the end, which is kind of a joke. You know, it's the F word. Ha 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 ha. But that's the only character other than DeWinter wearing a teddy bear suit that we can really glean any sort of, oh, okay, well, that's one of them. But then it boils back to just why? Why are they wearing the teddy bear suits? What, does it, what function does it serve apart from the visual? Well, dear listener who's listening to this podcast right now, you tune in to that Don McPherson interview. He's going to explain exactly why they're in teddy bear outfits. And it's pretty crazy, but also makes a lot of logical sense. This movie? Nah. -uh. Finished product makes no sense whatsoever. I, uh, you wonder what, like, I was, I was a child when I saw this film in the cinema. And I feel like I was partially the target audience for this. Even at 11, I knew this was confusing. Yeah. So it's, it's definitely a failure on the part of the film. I, I, even the teddy bears could have just used one line. ADR, I don't care. Just something to just sort of, you know, just give us something. Because otherwise we're just staring at the scene and, and we're all scratching our heads. You at least have to put father in one of those outfits. Yeah. You have to. Like, even just do an insert shot of father around the corner somewhere you know when all the chaos is going on just pulling off one of the helmets and okay cool that's a character we actually recognize do you think that would have like helped well i i think it i i don't really care who was in them i just think i would like to have known why they were in them sure well cam I, we're, we're really ringing in our birthday with this film so i think what we'll do is we'll pivot over to our lead actors and sort of talk about their performance now Rafe finds I struggle with as a mm. person. I I associate him so strongly with Voldemort. Oh, okay. That for me, it's really hard to remove that from my brain. So when he turned up in Bond, for instance, I was just like, you know, Harry Potter, boy <laughs> who lived. And I just kept saying that at the screen. And then they threw me out of the theatres. It was quite embarrassing. But um, you didn't like my Rafe Fiennes impression by the sounds <laughs> Not of bad, not bad. Uh, um, but it, it, this is probably one of his earlier roles I've seen him in. Um, I can I get why they cast him. I get why they cast him. He looks the part. Yeah, like I think Ray Fiennes is a really great actor, and I mean, for me, you know, Schindler's List was the one that broke him through for me. Mm. And boy, he is the epitome of evil in that movie. Like, if you want to see the most reprehensible character ever put to screen, watch him in Schindler's List. Um, but I remember the years after that, he was kind of bouncing around. It's almost like they didn't know what to do with him. 
And he's in like Catherine Bigelow's Strange Days, which is a really, really interesting sci-fi film. I think worthy of reappraisal and it has like no Blu-ray release whatsoever. It's like True Lies of the Abyss and that it just is this weird limbo where it's on a crappy DVD transfer. But um, movie that he's very good in, but it felt like they hadn't quite nailed down what Rafe Fiennes was yet as a lead. And going forward, you know, he does things like Grand Budapest Hotel where he's so funny and so quirky. Great in the Bond movies now, but... This was a point where they're still trying to push him as potentially, like, a movie star leading man. I think he's, like, a charming guy. I, I like him in terms of just, like, the visual of John Steed. But, like, he doesn't feel like he has the gravitas to ground this movie. He does for other movies, but in terms of what he's playing here, he just feels like he's playing everything a little too slight. I, his best bits in the film are either when he's not talking... Or when he's in an action sequence. So that start of the film, when you meet him on that sort of training course in the little quaint village in England, which is actually, you know, that's exactly what a little village is like. And you are often attacked by the milkman, I can confirm. Um, that's great. You know, he's got that sort of that quirkiness, that British sort of vibe going on. But he's not really talking. He's making the odd quip, but it feels natural. And then as soon as Uma Thurman turns up, it falls to pieces. But then in the final battle against uh, August of Winter, you know, he's actually having another sword fight. And, you know, it's more of an action sequence. You know, he's, he's soaking wet because of the water. And it's like a ferocious action sequence. That works too. He looks the part then. But you know, as soon as he opens his mouth, it just falls apart for me. Yeah, like I like him doing kind of the gentleman spy action stuff where he's using, you know, the umbrella as a prop in the fight scenes. Things like that I, I enjoyed. But you, you are right. Like... I mean, the majority of his screen time is him trading quips with uh, Uma Thurman, and it just doesn't work, any of that material. And, he, I mean, he has the same problem as so many of the characters, just the distance. You never feel any sort of tension coming off of him, so it's tough to invest. I, I, I am genuinely curious, and it's genuinely a shame that we didn't get to watch a pilot. Mm -hmm. um, or, or, or agree to watch an episode, because... I wonder if that's how the show worked, if they were just quipping off of each other in or in strange situations. Maybe. But maybe it was the magic of, you know, Patrick McNee and uh Dinah Rigg. Yeah. Or on a on a Blackman. Yeah. That made that work, whereas these two didn't have that connection. So that lack of connection and the weird dialogue just leave you dry. And this movie is very much trying to be a romantic comedy for much of it. And doesn't work. Yeah. Um, Emma Peel, Uma Thurman you know, as we said before she's off of Pulp Fiction she's off of Batman and Robin hmm. and I mean, she's she's had a couple of bad films now in a row at this point uh, two stinkers has she done anything else apart from those three films at that point? oh boy, Um, I think she did like even Cowgirls Get the Blues or something like there were some independent films Um, but Batman and Robin and the Avengers were her two kind of at-bats for more of a um, big studio, A-lister status type of, you know, ongoing role. And it did not pan out. You know, you, a few years later, she does Kill Bill, and it's very clear Uma Thurman has the goods to be like an action star. She's fantastic in those movies. It's just that, I mean, the Quentin Tarantino dialogue is a little bit better than the... Um, quirky Avengers dialogue and the poison ivy plant puns so it's so weird how she does two movies with puns like back to back I don't understand it's so so strange but 
I think like you know like Ray Fine, she you know physically like she's pretty good in the action scenes here. I buy her as both the clone Emma Peel as well as the um the you know the weather scientist Emma Peel. It's all great. Uh, great's a strong word, but it's functional. Like I I buy her in those roles. Um, she the problem is both her and Fines they work as action figures. And action figures aren't known for being three-dimensional. Every time you expect these characters to have dimension, it doesn't work. But in terms of standing still or, you know, trading punches, they work. That's probably why the trailer was so good. Yeah, it's like quick action moments, scenes of Uma Thurman, like, strutting out in the cat suit. You're like, well, yeah, this movie, you know, pops. Like, it's something that seems easy to market and exciting to watch. But in terms of actually executing it over the course of 90 minutes, it doesn't work. And to be fair to Uma, she had one further obstacle to overcome, which is that she's not British. Mm, yeah. So she had to put on a questionable accent to then deliver these lines. I mean, I don't know why she couldn't have just been American. Oh, they would not have done that. That would have been heresy. Like, you British would have been just furious if they announced that Emma Peel was American. You would have been angry. You would have been like, <laughs> it would have been like the old uh, Simpsons um, torch carrying mobs in the streets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can see. I mean, we're, we're still not over the Boston Tea Party stuff. So, you know, we're, we're, we're a bit grouchy about that sort of thing. So, OK, maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. But I don't know. Hire a dialect coach. Yeah. Go a little deeper or find a find a weird accent in the UK that you can do. Maybe you can't do Pompey Londoner accent, but maybe you can do, a, you know, someone from up north or, you know, someone from Wales or something. You could do a different British accent. Um, so she has to overcome that and she's got terrible dialogue. And so, again, sort of DOA really, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So that pivots us over to a man that we haven't spoken about enough on this episode. And frankly, it's a it's a bit of a shame because he is Sir Sean Connery and he is our villain, Sir August de Winter, uh, maybe one of the best villain names of all time, mm. which is lifted, I guess, from Richard the Third. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, I guess uh, that's probably just so they could do that one line. Well, they have the reference to the Tempest with the Prospero Weather Network, so yeah, maybe there's, mm-hmm. that's the other Shakespeare connection. Yeah, sure. Uh, look at us talking Shakespeare mm. on Spy Hearts. Yeah, there we go. Really, really pushing it up for our one year anniversary, <laughs> um, or, or bringing it down completely with Avengers. It's, it's really a toss up at this point. High and low art. Yeah, yeah. Okay, are we middle art then? I think. Well, we aspire to middle. <laughs> low and middle. Um, I don't mind. I I think Sean Connery is a fun bit of this film. Because he takes, he does not take it seriously whatsoever. He's clearly having fun, you know, doing the Bill Shatner chew the scenery all day long, pontificating as he walks around. I mean, there are some questionable choices with like you know, grabbing Uma Thurman by the throat and stuff like that. Made me cringe a bit, but he is he's Sean Connery, man. Uh, yeah, I mean, Sean Connery just seems like he's doing this whole movie as some sort of private joke. He seems mm. consistently amused with what he's doing. They're putting him in like really garish, like Scottish attire. Um, he just garish. Seems... I'm wearing it right now. <laughs> he just seems like he's just having fun. Um, I think this was pretty much a paycheck role for him. I don't think he was investing a great deal in the uh, character of August de Winter. Uh, no, but... I disagree. I disagree. I feel like he saw fun. He saw some fun with it. I don't think. I, I don't think he needed the paycheck. I don't think he was in it for that. 
Oh, I do. He was doing in the nineties. He was mostly doing things he wanted to do. The Rock was uh, something he wanted to do. The Rock is um, a little far away from this movie. <laughs> well, there's a rock yeah. and a hard place. This is the hard place. <laughs> but I think like Sean Connery read this and was like, "Yeah, I get to play a comic book character. I'm gonna go big." And it's that school of thought uh, that's so popular in that era where. You know, Jack Nicholson plays the Joker. Danny DeVito plays the Penguin. And suddenly, like, if you are a really uh, prestigious actor getting cast as a comic booky villain, you're just like, I go big. That's what I do. Tommy Lee Jones screams his way through Batman Forever. Um, Arnold Schwarzenegger camps it up throughout Batman and Robin. I think Sean Connery's following in that lineage. He's just like, I'm a comic book villain. I'm going to be goofy. Well, you get the great accent it's kind of the total package of Sean, and plus he's that name on the title. Oh yeah, like saying Sean Connery's in this film. If anything, he's bigger than Ray Fiennes and Uma Thurman. Oh, for sure. I mean, he would have been a larger reason for me going to this movie than uh, either of them. I I don't know necessarily if that was the same for me as an eleven year old. I don't think he. I, I hadn't really seen his Bonds that much. I'd seen the, a couple of the Roger Moore's, I think, around that age. But um, yeah, I, I think I just. I don't know what really dragged me in, but it, he's the fun part of this film. Whenever he's on screen, at least you know you're going to have something funny. Yeah. It it might be insane. It might be completely ludicrous, but it's funny. His death scene is great. I am someone who always loves a uh, amazing de- villain death scene. And the fact he gets impaled, electrocuted, and then carried away by the electrical bolt is incredible. It gets like reverse palpatine Yeah. Like electric upwards. I never forget why it carried him up. I don't I never care. Never understood that. It was yeah. great. Mm. Yeah. Fuck it. At that point, you're 80 minutes in and you're just completely yeah. confused. Yeah. But yeah, I, I, that's my my only other sort of favorite moment was anything he was on screen for. Really, it was it was just fun to watch. He is always fun to watch, but mm-hmm. he can't save this film. No, no. I have a question for you. Why are there no people in this movie? This is a movie set in London, and the movie in some ways embraces its artifice and that, like, it looks really fake, and I think a lot of it intentionally looks fake. I think the snow is made to look, um, like, cut up paper. Paper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it it has that whole soundstage kind of feel, the way that, like, Tim Burton's Batman Returns does. Um, It's very much trying to make the artifice look kind of beautiful in a way, and weird, and kind of surreal. Um, But... This is London. We're told that, like, August the Winter's plan, you know, to, I don't know, kind of have world supremacy through weather. And you cut to, like, streets of London. There's not a single person. They're on the road. There's not a single other car in sight other than, you know, whether there's a villain chasing them or a murder hornet of some sort. Um, it's just very weird how unpopulated this movie is. See, I, when I was watching it, I noticed, I noted that, too, because it's the city I live in. Uh City of Angels. Well, that's the wrong one, but um, <laughs> that, that's L.A. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was going with the Red Hot Chili Peppers theme, um, but I couldn't figure out why. I wondered if it was like a budgetary thing because like, there's a scene where they're pulling up to like the headquarters of whatever their organization is. I've always forgotten the name of, and it is just their car. Now in London, you would have at least one homeless person, at least one traffic warden giving you tickets for people that are parked in the wrong places. And at least three drunk people? Yeah. At sure. any given time of the day? Probably shouting at one another. 
Um, and none of that was there. Oh, and a tourist with a map. Yeah. I think that's, uh, yeah. I think that's why it feels so weird when, like, you know, the Carmen Ayogo or, um, you know, the Keely Hawes characters show up because you're like, there's other people in this movie? Like, it feels weird. Whereas if it was a populated world, maybe you wouldn't raise those questions. But here, it feels like every character should be of some importance because there's no other normal individuals. Like, there's no extras in this entire movie. Well, maybe it's a... And this is not a reason to do it. It's just an idea I had off the top of my head. Maybe it's just because they couldn't afford to do it with the the effects later on. So when mm. London's being pelted with snow, you... I mean, you would theoretically have people running and screaming and frozen in ice and buried under it and you'd have frozen people or they couldn't afford any of that so that it's easy just to set the set the tone that there's no one here and then later you haven't got to have clips of people running and screaming from the thunderstorms possibly i think it's more just budgetary they had 60 million dollars and it seems like they put all their money into their sets and i i'm sure sean connery wasn't doing this for cheap um i just think a lot of the money went there um but it's just so weird that like Look, maybe they don't have a lot of people in the finale. I think the sh- you know the destruction of Big Ben's enough, but it's just weird how every single place they go, there's no human beings, there's no cars on the road, there's no nothing. If anything, the village was uh, more population than London. Yeah, yeah, which you, is yeah, it's very strange. Yeah, I every time you point something out about this film, I just go, huh, <laughs> and you can't answer it. It's so it's so strange. Um. Okay, do you have any final thoughts, Cam? Um, I like that they introduced the Connery character as being a fanatical meteorologist. What does that even mean? I, as I just said, I have absolutely no idea. A man who is obsessed with predicting the weather. <laughs> There's this whole like bit where he meets Uma I, in, in his little, I don't know, arboretum. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it gets a bit sexual, and he gets quite hot and heavy about her saying some cloud names. Yeah. Nimbus. <laughs> it's like, okay, Sean, uh, this is going a strange place. Yeah, I, I didn't I didn't get it. It's, it's, again, like, I don't understand this character. I don't understand any of the characters, really, but uh, it all feels very muddy. I, I, I don't really have, like, any final thoughts except for... We know out, there's a cut out there of this film that's longer. Mm-hmm. And we've spoken already about maybe it wouldn't save the film. But what do you think the cut would bring? Coherence. I think the plot points would make sense. I just think that's a big part of it. I think scenes where characters are knocked out and then wake up in an entirely different location, that wouldn't happen in the longer cut. If that version had been put out, do you think this film would have gone from you know, Razzie nominated to a middling box office. You know, maybe it it it, it has a Blu-ray release, but that's about it. Like it's not, you know, uh, it, it's it's an Arrow Films Blu-ray release. It's a Kino Lorber Blu-ray release. It is not getting a 4K restoration. I feel like it would probably have gone from being a one-star across the board movie to a two-star across the board movie. Yeah, that's the feeling I'm getting, and it's a shame because. You know, you guys will hear the interview later this week, both the interviews, and both people we speak to are very passionate about the film they made. And, you know, I, I share that passion in a sense because I, I share the joy they have for making film. This is why we have a film podcast. I just don't think this particular film was salvageable. Yeah. I don't know how, I don't know how it got inflated from a, 
I mean, well, we do know because we we spoke to Don McPherson for how it got inflated from a you know middle of the road film like you know forty million, thirty million box office to trying to be a blockbuster. I don't know how it went from that to that, and I think that's probably where it lost a lot of its magic. I think the casting was a big part of it. I think they just as soon as they didn't get the actor for the role they wanted as Emma Peel. Um, it, it just became studio interference and you had someone who's a great actor, you know, uh, Uma Thurman's a, you know, Academy Award nominated actress. She's given many, many great performances. It's just like a very poor fit here. Do you think that, is that what you hang your hat on as the, as the failing of the film? Yeah. You don't have any chemistry. So your movie's dead in the water. I think that's a, if you can't even hang on to that, then you've just lost everything else. That's the core thing that has to work. Okay. I have two final thoughts. Okay. More observations, really. Firstly, did you notice the obvious dubbing in the Sean Connery teddy bear scene? Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of it just feels like they're having to dub in dialogue to explain things to, you know, basically cover up all the the problems that they're creating by editing the thing down to shreds. Oh no! It, it's a it's 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 a one word. Oh, which word? So he's he's talking to the teddy bears and he's. I can't believe I just said that sentence. <laughs> Sean Connery is talking to the teddy bears, and he's saying, you know, uh, something about an amount of money. He's going to charge them one million dollars. Um, but in he on his mouth he says pounds. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like one million dollars. Right. Like, uh, yeah, I, uh, that that jumped out at me. I could see him say pounds. I and it. I, you think it would be pounds, seeing as it's an entirely British film. Uh-huh. And I thought maybe when it would screen over on your side of the pond, it would actually be pounds. But um, weird. Yeah, we just keep the pounds line. That's strange. Um, so speaking of uh, fencing scenes and referencing Die Another Day. Yep. Early on in the film, we get the meeting between uh, John Steed and Emma Peel. Now... I have a question as to why he's naked. I never got that. That's strange. But the actual gentleman's club in question, uh, Boodles, I believe this film calls it. Yep. That looked remarkably like the place they shot the fencing scenes in Die Another Day. Or is it just it's those classic gentleman's club kind of atmosphere? I don't know. Have you been to many of these gentlemen's uh, clubs? I was going to say I'm at it right now, but I've already said I'm in New York doing the Home Alone thing, so I can't make that joke, unfortunately. Uh, I've never been to a proper gentleman's club. Um, Not in that sense, anyway. And so, no, I don't know. But it it looked remarkably like it. But I know what you're saying about that sort of old boys club feeling to it. You know, the the leather chairs, that whole get-up. I know what you're saying. But it just felt like it was exactly the same place. I'd be interested to take a look and see if it was the same location. It's possible i don't think it's impossible that it would be the uh the same location um but yeah kind of a weird sequence for them to first meet i guess it's supposed to be like a you know he's trying to challenge her by being naked through the whole scene and she's not lifting an eyebrow to the whole thing but it's a it's a weird scene in a movie full of weird scenes if anything i'm more challenged by having to see ray fines naked Mm, mm, i suppose um I had just a question about the um, robotic hornet attack we have, which reminded me in some ways of the speeder bike chase in Return of the Jedi when they're going through the trees and they're like blowing up when they hit the trees. It reminded me of Return of the Jedi. But this sequence, like I was kind of surprised that the CG 
looks better than I would have expected for a 1998 mm-hmm. film. Like the Hornets actually didn't look terrible, and they obviously kind of hold up. Yeah, yeah, they're using practical ones in spots. You know, when one crashes on top of the car, it's clearly a practical model that Ray finds is grappling with. But again, it's like your characters don't seem particularly concerned at all by these hornets flying through the air and they're saying things like, oh, it was just a beautiful day in the country. And it's like, okay, I guess. When they just sipping tea a moment before. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if there was a shot at one point where like he just pulls his tea up from under the dashboard and goes, and then just puts it down again as he keeps driving away from the bees. But like teddy bears, bees, Sean Connery. This film is strange, man. <laughs> He's like, T, not B. <laughs> yeah 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 well i feel like i've i've got through my issues in this film i think i i've i've found in my head where the problem is from talking to you but um i suppose that brings us to the question and it's a toughie isn't it yeah does 1998's the avengers make the knock list no (laughs) whoa 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 you haven't heard my answer yet Hey, 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 hey. <laughs> no. Yeah, this one's very easy. Like, I don't think the filmmakers would put this movie on the knock list themselves. They both have, you know, a lot of issues with the form that it exists in now. They aren't particularly happy with this 90-minute slash to ribbons cut. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the thing's a disaster narratively. And, uh, uh, I mean, I'll say this much. You know, you said, uh, or you asked if it would be better remembered as a, you know, like a two-hour, maybe two-star movie? Maybe the answer is no. Maybe people aren't fascinated by this two-star version. Maybe the... And and I'm just assuming it's a two-star version, but when the chemistry is like this and it's so full of puns, I feel like you're not looking at, you know, a great film at the end of the day, but I can only make that assumption. But regardless, I just feel like people are more intrigued by this film, this 90-minute version, than they probably would be by the two-hour so I do wonder if maybe this movie's legacy continues because of that. For me, this is a perfect example of studio interference ruining a film, but I'm not entirely sure the film was there in the first place. So it is, again, a perfect storm of just a really, 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 really bad, but interesting film. Mm, yeah, yeah. Like I, I, The Noclus itself is kind of a, you know, the best of the best. And we've let things on as sort of examples. So we talk about Our Man Flint. It's kind of a, the example of the, the spy 60s craze. The, the spoofs, I should say. Um, not necessarily on the merit of the film being the best thing ever, but it was kind of just, it was a, a very good example, at least anyway. No one should have to go through this in, in the processes of making a film. I feel bad for everyone who involved uh and it is a blemish on their careers unfortunately yeah totally yeah i agree mm-hmm. um well it's a no from me and a no from you and as such shockingly the avengers is not making the knock list uh you know we're celebrating one year by not inducting the avengers but cam we might still be able to induct it onto something else yeah yeah I think this is worth a conversation. Now, for those who don't know, we have a new list on the podcast. We introduced it a couple of weeks back. Uh, There's a special episode devoted to it, and it's called The Disavowed List. This is a list of the worst 
of the worst. The pits, the disgusting entrails of the spy cinematic universe. The stuff that no one talks about. It's the dirty dark room films that we all just don't want to mention to each other because it's all a bit too icky. And some of the examples we've had are you know, Men in Black 2, Men in Black International, uh, One of Our Dinosaurs is Missing, and of course the two Harry Palmer TV films. They've all been disavowed because they are a blemish on the otherwise porcelain face of spy movies. But is Avengers going to be disavowed? I think there's a very strong argument for it to be. And I think it has a legendary status as one of the all-time mangled studio products. And I think the filmmakers would agree. Like, this is not what they set out to make at all. Like, this is a completely compromised, incoherent thing. Like, a 90-minute film that it's very clear that they don't really have much of a connection to whatsoever. So it's... I don't feel like I'm kicking around someone's very personal final result. Um, so it's hard not to argue. Like, I don't know that we are going to deal with many more movies on this podcast as completely run through the garburetor by a studio as this one. I'm leaning towards a, a yes for the list. My only reservation is that apart from Sean Connery, or I think it's quite fun in this film, this film also serves, you know, you think about like, bad films in history you think about like tommy Wiseau's the room it has its cult status it's so bad that people watch it like it's gone it's it's almost gone back on itself and it's actually probably more popular than, than some other films that deserve to have a lot more eyes on it i feel like avengers has that kind of life now does it do people enjoy I, I mean, it? It doesn't get talked about. I, I mean, it's not getting toured around. You know, Der- Jeremiah Chechik is not touring the film around while selling his underwear brand. So, you know, that's yeah. not happening. But I don't know. I, I feel like for like film scholars, it's got some merit because you can look at it and be like, this is the the epitome of studio interference. That's not a good thing though. Like to me, that's like about as bad as you could hope for, and that it's like. Because it's so mangled, it's a movie for no one. The tone doesn't make any sense. The characters have no connections. The plot doesn't make any sense. Like, when you name The Room, that's a movie people have a lot of fun watching. People get together. The people pay to go and watch The Room together and laugh at it. I don't know that The Avengers is that funny to watch. It's more like you are just watching a very expensive disaster. Yeah, I can't. I was trying to defend it. I was trying to give it some sort of leg to stand on, but I just there's like it's 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 got cult status in that sense of it's just seen as this blemish of the 1998 you know, of the of the 90s cinema. I should say like it, it people just talk about the Avengers and snigger at the idea. Um, mm-hmm. and I don't know whether that means we shouldn't put it on there because it's like the obvious thing to do, or if we're going by our own rules, it should be on there. I would say, yeah. I think it should be. Okay, so you're saying disavowed. Yeah, I, I just think if you're going to name a spy film that... If someone came to you and said, name one of the worst spy films, I don't think it'd be long before you'd say The Avengers. I think it'd be one of the easiest answers, really. I do too. Why did we pick it for the one year? It's because people think that this movie is very notable for being a mess. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to say yes. Let's disavow this sucker. Let's do it. And also... 
the execs at Warner Brothers in 1990s. We'd like to add them to the uh, disavowed list as well. Please don't make any more spy films, yeah, guys. <laughs> you clearly have no idea what you're doing. Please get off the uh, off the chair. Well, it didn't make the knock list, but it did get two yeses, and as such, it is making the disavowed list. No, your ears are not deceiving you. You did just hear a slide whistle in your ear. Now, we're using that noise as like a rallying cry, as our bat signal, basically, to alert our listeners that the film is that bad. If it makes the disavowed list, you're going to know about it. It's going to get the slide whistle. That's right, and I've chosen the slide whistle because it scores the worst moment in the history of James Bond, which is the slide whistle decision um, that they play that over the car leaping sequence in The Man with the Golden Gun. Yeah, truly one of the worst moments in James Bond history. Uh, luckily soundtracked to the slide whistle, and as such we thought we would uh, take it as our own. But it looks like the dossier on The Avengers is complete and filed as disavowed. Goodbye and mm. good riddance. Now, Cam, before we talk about what we're doing next week, we have a quick message from the Weird Distractions and I'm going to need a distraction after this film podcast. Do you often find that you need a distraction from everyday life? Do you like true crime, conspiracy theories, paranormal stories, and other weird dark tales? Well, tune in and turn up Weird Distractions Podcast, where we, your hosts, Christy and Alex, bring you a weird distraction to help you get through the work week. Every Sunday morning, you can find our show on Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Spotify, Good Pods, and more. So grab a snack, get comfy, and make sure to lock those doors. Need a distraction? We got you. Well, that's the weird distractions. And as I led with, I'm going to need a distraction after this and hopefully a weird one, but although this was pretty weird too. But you can find Weird Distractions Podcast on all major podcast apps. Cam, what are we doing next week? Yes, we are tackling James Bond, but not in the way you would expect. We are not actually doing one film next week. We are doing four. What we are doing is holding a round table to discuss the Pierce Brosnan James Bond era, sort of a retrospective on our coverage of those films. And we're going to talk about the legacy of Brosnan's um, part in playing James Bond, as well as how it affected the overall franchise. So I think it's going to be really interesting. Yeah, we die another day in our rearview mirror quite recently when we covered it with M from Verbal Diorama. Um, we decided when well, we finished tackling a, a Bond actor's films, we're going to have a roundtable discussion to sort of galvanize culminate our thoughts and we're gonna have some really interesting guests actually we've got some really great guests lined up for the episode which we're going to keep a secret until we uh preview the episode the week of so look forward to that so your mission should you choose to accept it is to catch up on our previous james bond episodes if you have not and make sure if you haven't watched them check out the pierce brosnan james bond films we're talking goldeneye tomorrow another dies the world is not enough and i guess die another day we are of course a proud member of quite the thing media and Podbreed podcast networks you can of course follow us on social media discreetly at spyhards that's s-p-y-h-a-r-d-s on facebook twitter and instagram but until next week, listeners, one should never fear being wet.